Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 62 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How's everybody doing? Hey, October 24th, Saturday night, Austin, Texas, Billy Bright, Kim Warner, Paul Glass, and myself will be doing another live stream. Um, I can't wait to do it, and if you live in Austin or the Austin area, there might also be a little something special going on before the podcast, or the live cast, I should say, so stay tuned for that information. I want to thank Mandolin Cafe, Peghead Nation, and Ellis Mandolins right now so far for sponsoring it. We really, really appreciate that, and uh, looking forward to doing it. Uh, I also want to thank Peghead Nation for sponsoring this week's episode with Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including beginning mandolin, an intermediate bluegrass mandolin, of course, the fingerboard method, with Sharon Gilchrist, bluegrass mandolin jam favorites, and the advancing mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, Monroe-style mandolin with Mike Compton, melodic mandolin tunes with John Reichman, chord melody mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish mandolin with Marla Fibish, and theory for mandolin and fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. That's MANDOLINBEER, all one word. Also brought to you this week by Northfield Mandolins. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at NorthfieldMandolins.com or download their app at Mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And also, Ear Trumpet Labs. Ear Trumpet Labs hand-build microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at EarTrumpetLabs.com today. Thank you so much to my sponsors. And of course, thank you to all the listeners. If you hadn't had a chance yet to follow me on my social media, I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Mandolins and Beer. And also hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this to, and maybe go to the iTunes spot and leave a review. Hey, I am this month trying to listen to one full album a day with zero interruptions. If you've got an album that you think would be great to listen to, Please just shoot me your suggestions. Go to mandolinsbeer.com and go to the uh, contact thing and just fill that out real quick and shoot me a quick email. I would love some recommendations. And last but definitely not least, the next track by track will be out Monday and that'll be featuring David Benedict and his album, The Golden Angle, and a brand new track David has sent me to debut on the podcast. So that's pretty exciting stuff. In the meantime, let's get into it here with Walter Carter from Carter Vintage Guitars. Cheers, everybody. Well, now I'd like to welcome to the podcast the in-person, the the rare in-person version of the <laughs> podcast, uh, Walter Carter, Carter Vintage. How you doing, Walter? I'm great. Thanks yeah. for having me here. Welcome. You had an exciting yeah. morning. Uh, I walk in and Aquaman is is uh, in the parking lot. He cut a swath <laughs> through the store this morning. He's a guitar guy. Yeah. That's and uh, and a motorcycle guy. So he was uh, he had a van full of guitars uh, pulling a, a trailer with three vintage Harleys behind yeah, it. So, yeah, some sweet-looking Harleys. Yeah, pretty cool guy. You never, yeah. know, you never know who's going to come in. Yeah, no kidding, man, I bet. So, um, obviously, uh, there was, we got here, and your staff was like, hey, do you have an appointment? So, we're here during a maybe the strangest time that any of us have ever seen, I guess. So if we could maybe just talk a little bit about like how the pandemic has affected, I mean, especially a town like Nashville where it's not only affecting 
stores and places, but the amount of performers who live here and like you said, like yeah, secretary, it just well, crazy. yeah, the pandemic has has just crippled Nashville. Uh, they've they've tried to close the bars and reopen and then close them and and work at uh, small capacity, and it, it's they have just gotten back in the last couple of days uh, where they're open enough to have people play again. So uh, basically it was the entire music business, which is this town uh, was essentially unemployed and it wasn't just musicians. It's everybody, you know, booking agents, uh, tour workers, guy at the merch table, you know, everybody associated with live performance uh, was, was out of a job and, and still is. Yeah. Wow. And it's hurt. It's hurt our business also, because obviously sure. being right in the middle of Nashville, we've got a lot of local musicians. Um, so we uh, we got some business from repairs. It, it did seem to be a good time for people to <laughs> yeah, go on, say. get their guitars fixed. But, right. <laughs> but our our uh, our walk in and, and local business, uh, you know, cut in is still cutting into our, our our sales and we're not near back to normal yet. Before I ever came here, I, that's all you'd hear about is Carter. I mean, people post pictorials of their trips here, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like, this is, if you're a mandolin player, this is the, and we're in the room, we're in the yeah. room, if you're the mandolin player, by the way, of like, yeah. you know, this is where the, 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 the dream mandolins hang, you know, and, you know, travel, you know, travel, you don't have people who have been like, you know, I would imagine like somebody from Montana, mm -hmm. say, who has been saving up to come here and well, yeah. not going to travel. Well, a lot of people have come in through the years and have never played a lore. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've, I've seen them and, and played them for a long time and, and hope, hope I'm not jaded about it. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, if they say, you know, I, can I just see the lore? I say, yeah, not only that, you can play it. Um, you know, they're behind glass, but we, we pull them out and play them. So it, we gained a rep. We were lucky. Just people heard of us and, and knew of us when we opened up. So we had some good mandolins here right from the start. And then also some of the makers moved to us, Gilchrist in particular, followed by Duff and Ellis um, and Collings. And these are all dealers who uh, were affiliated with, I mean, all makers who were affiliated with other dealers at that time. So we, we just pretty quickly uh, built a, it seems like we started with a reputation just on the, um, on, on the basis of word of mouth. I mean, Scott Titchener put up a notice when we opened, and I don't even yeah. think, I'm not even sure we were open yet, <laughs> uh, because we, we were actually having people coming in and out before we had our, our, our permit. Oh, wow. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. There was still people will come in. Are you open or, you know, still under construction? Yeah. Wow. Well, both. You know, we got a few instruments here. Sure. And even when we opened, we only had about 75 instruments. So we were. No kidding. Yeah. We were spacing them out and we had guitars flat against the wall. And so it looked like we had something. But that uh, that got out of hand really quickly. I mean, we've we've got about 1500 now. And we're down a little bit with covid which is actually a good thing. We can see the floor now which <laughs> yeah. in, in spaces where we, we couldn't before. That's one of the uh, greatest memories of this place I have is the first trip I came here, and it was a February, and it was cold, and there would have been ice, so nobody was out. And Christy was here, and 
she's just like, I'm playing some mandolins outside there, and she's just like, oh, do you want to see some lures? And brings <laughs> yeah. me in here, and then she gets out two lures and a fern. Yeah. And just sets them uh, down, and she's like, just holler when you want me to put them back up. It's, it's, I've been here for five minutes, and I felt like at home. Well, that idea of being friendly was, it's written into our business plan because so, I don't, I don't know if everybody had this experience as a kid. Everybody who was trying to play guitar and couldn't afford one probably did, where you go into a music store and, you know, you, you grab a guitar and start playing it and the owner knows that you're, you're not going to be able to buy it that day, you know, maybe sometime <laughs> down the road. Yeah. And, and, and in a lot of cases, you feel uncomfortable. And we didn't want that to happen to anybody here. And we just sort of, before we opened the store, for a few months, we were, while the building was being renovated, we were working out of our home. And we were having people in our living room. <laughs> and, and so we just kind of kept that, you know, we moved the living room to the store, basically. Wow. So instead of, you know, business in our living room, we had now a living room in our business. <laughs> and and we also had the we have a kitchen area that was open up, up until just recently but we 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 had to we just needed more wall space so we we boxed it in but uh we tried to keep and we had you know a sofa in, in addition to benches and a couple of comfortable chairs and the those pesky instruments just crowded all of that stuff out <laughs> along with a few other concepts that we had at the beginning uh, like live shows and yeah, that's right. and uh, and artwork on the walls and and things like that and and uh, it's just gotten you know too many instruments. Yeah. Well, can you have too many? Yeah. I mean, maybe you could, <laughs> I guess. But you know, and you do. You know, I'd, I'd say this is still artwork yeah. hanging on these walls. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how how did you get started? Were you, you well, you were a historian mm-hmm. for Gibson for a while, but how did you find yourself so in love with instruments? Well, I. I've been playing guitar since I was like 11 or so and, but not with any historical or, or thought of, of ever buying and selling guitars. And I came to town as a songwriter and, you know, I had a Guild D40, which I still got and, and a Hagstrom 12 string and what else? That's all I had for, for years and at one point, I got my songwriting career got derailed while I worked for the Tennessean, the morning paper here. So I sort of had a split career from then on in, in music and in journalism. And at one point, when the music side was uh, kind of low, I was looking for a job. And with, with some journalism background, uh, I knew that, um, or I'd been told that George Groon wanted to start a magazine uh, to replace Fretz. Fretz had announced that they were they were closing up. Uh, so that's actually how I was hired there, and that, that was in 1987. And I was still, I was splitting time. I was teaching music business courses at Middle Tennessee State and, and also songwriting. Um, I had just gotten a cut on a Kathy Matea album, and so all of a sudden, you know, things were, were turning around <laughs> in all right. in all directions, um, and of course the, the that magazine didn't work out. But we ended up doing three books together, um, and in and being around guitars there, then obviously since I'm writing about the history of these guitars and the and the spec changes and everything else and the companies, uh, 
I gained a, a you know one baptism by fire and also a, a, a quick interest and and bought a few uh, <laughs> yeah, but... while I was there and uh, my wife Christy uh, started working there as a bookkeeper also in '88 and and she developed a little bit of a bug for for guitarists my weakness was was uh, pretty cheap lap steels um, relatively cheap at two other instruments at that time and unfortunately her weakness was like sunburst vintage pre-war martins <laughs> so, <laughs> a little price difference yeah <laughs> I, and i do remember at one guitar show i bought a an amp and a uh and a lap steel set and i think i paid 700 dollars for it and well she had gotten her payback by the time i got home she bought a little alpha <laughs> it was driving it around so oh it did i didn't it didn't quite even out but it was I, it wasn't something you want to argue with it was yeah. oh. it worked out for both for both <laughs> of us um and then i i left gibson i mean uh gruens and went to gibson uh when they were approaching their 100th anniversary and wanted wanted a book so I wrote probably about a third of the text of that book and then rounded up a bunch of other writers uh, to do uh, the other chapters and also did an Epiphone book while I was there with Gibson. So, uh, and, and the whole time I was there, I sort of became the de facto historian. Uh, everybody thought it was the greatest job in the world, but it was like if I had five duties there, that was fifth. There <laughs> right. Were, there were, um, and mostly what I, what I did, uh, in addition to the books was wrote the, the catalog copy and, and ad copy and, uh, the, their website started up at that time and I, I had the web guys under me for a while. Mm-hmm. What year uh, was that where you started at, at Gibson? 93. Oh, okay. And so they had had a pretty big boom. Yeah. Or rebirth because of like, like oh, yeah. slash, huh? They're, they're, kind yeah. of from like the Les Paul suddenly was yeah. the guitar to play again. Yeah, that was really a, a, a boom time for them. And and then I left in 98 for just to do freelance stuff for about three years and came back for another five years. Um, and then went back to Gruen. And yeah. meanwhile, my wife is, is putting in her time there, uh, ending up with a total of about 25 years. And, um, you know, by this time, people think I, I know something about Finnish guitars. And so I've, I've got a reputation in my own right that's not just connected with a, a store or, or even a company. Sure. And uh, it wasn't, we, we always thought about maybe doing our own store. Uh, it wasn't really a burning passion for me to, to buy and sell instruments because mostly I just bought. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but... Uh, towards the end of uh, 2012, um, you know, we parted ways and were able to buy this building and, and renovate it. And uh, we had some help from a from a friend financially uh, at first. And so, in pretty much June 1st of 2013 was the official opening. And you know, by that time we were. I don't think we ever had a a month that we lost money. We were we we hit the ground running. I mean, it was just it was just Christy and me and our son Bo uh, initially, and then we you know, then we started hiring more people. But it was it, it was quite a bit different in those days. The uh, we didn't have any money at all for promotion or advertising, and so 
we just uh, I, I learned that the little red button on on the camera was record, <laughs> and so that was our whole video setup. Right. Uh, just hit the red button on the camera, and I mean we had a monopod because I didn't want to spend the money on a tripod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, oh, that's great and what we what we did was just you know when somebody would come in do you want to can we video you playing something and they said yeah sure what do you want me to demo and, and we said well, we don't you don't have to demo anything pick out an instrument that you want to play and play whatever you want to play on it and if you know you know if it, we just had people looking like they were having a good time in the store um, you know, Grisman came in at, at one point, uh, and w- at, by this time we had we had done quite a few videos, and you know I was a little bit nervous. Christy is shameless about asking anybody <laughs> to do a video, but you know at some point, um, and he'd been here an hour or so just trying out stuff, and he was with his wife Tracy, and you know I said, well, you know, would you consider doing a video? And he said. Hey man, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So they did. Uh, Tracy played uh, an arch top here, and they did. I think uh, I'll see you in my dreams. But it, it was it was the greatest feeling just to see you know a couple you know happily playing a tune together. And you know he didn't play anything. He played the melody at least first time through without any flourish at all, not even a tremolo. Wow. And and it was just wonderful and. That just that represents the the atmosphere that we we had with the videos, and uh, that worked great for us to the point where we started having to turn people down. Oh, I bet. Yeah, but wow. people started doing it. wasn't It was never a demo, at least at that time. Mm-hmm. It, we do it more now. Yeah. Oh, they're uh, great when you do them too. Yeah. The- but it was never the the, the idea that that we're going to do a demo and. Uh, we had uh, uh, Brian Setzer came in. He had a couple of daughters in school in Tennessee, so we'd come in fairly often. And he grabbed you know, an arch top, didn't plug it in, didn't do a Stray Cats thing or anything, played like 30s arch top rhythm to the old song Sweet Lorraine. Oh, wow. And kind of hesitated a little bit in the bridge while he found the chord. <laughs> and it was just an endearing kind of thing. And all of a sudden, where we had maybe someone like Thiele, we were at 40 or 50,000 views. All of a sudden, Brian got, I don't know what it hooked into, but all of a sudden there was 500,000 views on that. And, wow. And okay, we'll, we'll take it. But it was all just sort of play what you want and play what makes you feel good here. Yeah, that's amazing. I remember seeing mm-hmm. one of the Thiele ones, and he had, there yeah. was like a line of some, uh, um, was it? That was Thiele, it the, was well, Gilchrist? Was, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, it was mostly Gilchrist. Yeah. It, was a, it, was a lore, it was every good mandolin we had at, <laughs> at that time. Well, Thiele, you know, it was, all right, it was Easter. And we were open on Sundays in those days. So Easter would have been, unless Christmas or New Year's fell on a Sunday, Easter would have been the only Sunday we ever had off. So Christy and I were home, probably one mimosa down. <laughs> And, and the phone rings, and of course, Chris, uh, being from another planet, was not aware that we have Easter here. <laughs> so he said, well, you know, we're in town, uh, can, we stop, can we stop in? Okay, so we throw clothes on, 
get in the car and we're about halfway here and christy's phone rings again and it's chris saying oh my god i, I didn't know it was easter uh <laughs> don't yeah we won't we won't bother you and so christy and i look at each other okay you know we're, we're already on the way and we'll come in and get a little work done so we we've been here a couple of minutes and and he calls again and says well we were going to the gym but we decided to come on by is that okay yeah sure so we called um a guy named josh alexander who was doing most of our video shoots and uh who's a mandolin guy and, mm-hmm. and he was you know not too far away sitting on his grandmother's porch napping in a rocking chair after <laughs> at least one bloody mary <laughs> but he jumped up and and came in and you know we just told ourselves is you know, as long as we got Chris here, we're going to make him play everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So he, you know, I, I don't remember what we had in the way of a mandocello, but I do remember, you know, if, you know, so we just kept handing him instruments. Right. And probably eight or ten. And, of course, you don't have to tell him to do anything else. He's, uh, he, he didn't come near running out of licks and, and <laughs> you know, just it's like a stream of consciousness the way he plays. And. You know, the, and no, no, the only thing he, his reach was almost, you wouldn't even call it short, but on a, like one little passage on the Manicello. <laughs> Other than that, there was not a, a flub note, a muff note, a hesitation or anything. It, it was just a, a truly amazing That's so uh, cool, thing. Man. And, and after that, people would come in and we did it out in the middle of the room. We had these yellow, we still have these yellow benches out there and people would come in. Oh, that's the that's the bench that Chris Steely sat on, and uh, you know it'd be like going to you know Yankee Stadium or something, and and that's the you know that's where Mickey Mantle stood, or that's so cool. Yeah, so that things like that helped us out a lot mm-hmm. at, at really no cost. And that's really before like like social media and viral videos. That's kind of like the the cusp of that now with like Instagram and stuff right. like that. Like yeah, you know it's such like a commonplace, but to yeah. um, you know, that was, that's still kind of early on yeah. when those sort of things were, could, like, oh, wow. Like you said, like the Brian Setzer or something. Don't know what it is, but it hooked into something and yeah. it gets half a million views. And we had shows here also, um, and we videoed some of those, um, obviously, with our little camera with the red button. Um, <laughs> it's the quality and, and with no extra mic. Oh, camera, yeah. yeah camera. <laughs> well, we, we had a little, some sort of a little... Uh, uh, sony stereo mic that was about an inch and a half long and stuck in the you know it was still right on the camera uh but that was it for for sound but uh you know sometimes the the show there was something from a show we could put up um and we had a you know it was mostly acoustic at that time and uh you know we had mike compton in a lot with when he was playing when they had helen highwater you know, with Greer and uh, Shad Cobb and, and Missy Rain. So they played like once a month, uh, just kind of getting, I, I think they, it was like a rehearsal to them. But, <laughs> right, yeah. but uh, you know, there was a good bit of mandolin in there. And uh, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, Matt Flinter came in and played. And Love I've Matt. Known Matt for, for years and through the Nashville Mandolin Ensemble. Uh, and uh, we grabbed john reichman one night made him play and mike later on did the streaming uh, monroe mondays or something like that i think that's what he called it uh where he would have someone in and they'd just break down a, a single monroe tune you wouldn't think that 
and, unless you were really into Monroe, that it would be very interesting, but it was just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, all that Monroe stuff. People yeah. think certain certain people sometimes I think mm-hmm. give Monroe short shrift in the uh, yeah. in the like oh it's just sloppy, but you break it down and really yeah. look under the hood and you're like yeah. oh <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I played in the Nashville Mandolin Ensemble and was around when Butch Baldessari put Monroe's stuff into a symphonic uh, back, uh, setting and you know combined. You know, a handful of tunes into three different movements and 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 really sort of you know made it like a symphony and that i think that really that showed the you know, the genius of, of or, or at least how, how great monroe was and it wasn't just a, an uneducated hillbilly who 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 had a few good licks or, or lucked into a a style of music right Right. yeah no absolutely not yeah so so how in the heck do you start a vintage store because you know if like you start a music store and you're like i'm gonna carry this brand and this brand and this brand you know you go through you order yeah from whoever well there's now got some prep work here (laughs) there is there is a little sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh piece on on our website that and i think uh, scott linked it from the cafe a, a few months ago about how to start a, a vintage uh, guitar store in seven easy steps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but how do you, I don't know how you really start a, a vintage store. We, we were so fortunate to, I mean, it's, it's like first uh, get a reputation in the vintage world. Well, how do you, you know, you know that, that played a big part in it. Uh, the location is, is critical. Uh, especially in in acquiring instruments, I mean that's the biggest problem most vintage dealers have. Um, they they can get their stuff out there uh, online nowadays mm-hmm. and don't have to rely on guitar shows to sell. But but they still that's the main way most dealers acquire instruments is is at guitar shows and a lot of that's from other dealers. So uh, it it makes it a, a very small margin. And we've just um, I mean, with our location, people would pass us by on their way to another prominent dealer. Um, we, we, early on, we sold a, a guitar to Carlos Santana, wow. who just noticed. We, we've got a couple of really cool murals on the outside of the store, you know, one with Maybell Carter and the other with a, a Gibson Les Paul. And, and Carlos was on his way to another store and saw ours and came back and, and, and bought a vintage Strat from us. Wow. So, so part of it's the you know, the general vibe, but the but location. You know, if we'd been a block away, that that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, this is a great location, man. And we've looked as we've gotten too big for the store. We've looked around and just haven't found anything that can match. We're all we're you know no matter what the another location has for it, it does not have you know, the traffic and the exposure and the easy find. Uh, that this one does, and and this one's also got a brewery next door. So. <laughs> yes, it does. So, Mandolin's yeah. a beer. Is I was a wondering when the beer me. part was going <laughs> to right. come right. in here. And so this place in Jackalope, that is like my. Uh, that's the first well, thing we usually do in Nashville if it's if we get here in time. Well, we were we early on uh, saw the uh, value of the connection between mandolins and beer. <laughs> and they opened uh, at the Jackalope just right before we did. Oh, okay, cool. And so we usually had a growler. Uh, usually Thunder Ann, but uh, 
was my favorite yeah. but um and in the fridge so if anybody wanted a beer or a glass of wine or a, a sip of moonshine mm-hmm. or, or or a bottle of water uh we had something there and then for shows we usually had a small keg uh, so we've we've had a, a long-standing relationship with with yeah. with the jackalope. So I'm glad I'm glad you said that because I didn't know if I could bring this up or not. But um, that trip where we we came here to look at the lores, like we had come here, it was first thing in the morning when you guys had first opened. So we we were here for a couple hours and just playing, and then um, we're going to leave, and because we were starving, and I asked Christy, I'm like, oh, where would you recommend? And you know, there's a little diner right over there. I'm like, oh, do they? Well, do they have beer though? Because you know, kind of on vacation here too. And um, she's like, well, go eat there and just come back here and drink beer with us and play more mandolins. I'm like, ah, I love this place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, uh, that was part of the hospitality yeah. theme. <laughs> um, so neat. So what was the first mandolin of note that you kind of got in here that you, that you remember that really stood out to you? Well, the, um, I don't think we had a, a lore from a uh, from the outside when we when we opened i had a uh, a lore mandola that's still here because i don't really want to sell it and i priced <laughs> it you know the, the the market's not what it was um so that's we had that from day one and then i guess we got a, another couple of lures i don't remember if any of them uh were storied instruments i i kind of don't think so um uh, and then, you know, it just went from there. Uh, not too long after we opened, uh, Steve Earle had to finance a, his most recent divorce. <laughs> and, and it's okay. To, he's, he has said this publicly, too, so it's, an, it's not a secret. Uh, but we went out to the, the place he has just outside of Nashville and brought back uh the first batch was 80 and then another 40 so 120 instruments uh and included in that was uh, a gilchrist that he had uh i don't know that there were any other mandolins but uh, that that was one that that stands out in memory and uh, but we started we started getting you know consignments from from people with a name like that and yeah. And just a lot of little things like that put us on the map. But I think just the the number of mandolins uh, that we would have on the wall at any time. It's amazing. uh, Really, I think word got around. So, you know, we've got, we try to keep, uh, you know, some, you know, under $500 imports around. Mm -hmm. uh, And then, you know, up to lures and, and try to hit everything in between. The um the Gilchrists seem to be the uh, seems to be the one currently that's kind of like the the name now of like you know it's and you know I don't I don't want to name any yeah. names of mandolins because I don't want to mm-hmm. leave anybody out or whatever but you know like or have anybody be like what do you mean my mandolins not like the big name because they're still big names but they yeah. def- that definitely seems to be the one that's really kind of the oh you know the waiting the waiting list mandolin I guess maybe would yeah be a way there's to, to put and, and there still is he's uh, his ba- he does one batch a year now and rather than two and, but uh, Christy usually jams a few in at the last minute so <laughs> instead of two batches of eight or ten he's doing one batch of 16 now and gotcha. complaining about it all the way but <laughs> but somehow getting it done and uh, there's there's never a spot so occasionally someone will back out that opens up a spot but 
but they're all always all sold by the time they get here. It's amazing. And that's a relationship that goes back uh, a number of years. And, uh, you know, as did Duff, uh, Paul, Paul Duff. Another great, great man. Yeah. Boy, what a, um, when about do you think it was such a renaissance of some of these smaller builders? And I say smaller, yeah. not, you know, as in not giant manufacturing plants. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, why in, in the man, I, I think Gibson some just allowed it to happen where you know with guitars yeah maybe the guitar makers like for acoustics like martin they've allowed you know other individual makers to make make some good acoustic guitars but not at the expense of martin sales sure sure uh but with mandolins i guess the market is 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 a little bit smaller and, and enough guys were coming in and gibson just hadn't really kept up um, and so when guys like Gilchrist uh, started making lore copies based on his personal examination in, in comparison with, with lores, uh, Gibson was still was pretty far afield of, of lore specs. You know, that would have been around 1980. Oh, yeah. A legendarily bad mandolins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Gibson kind of left the door open for these guys. Um, well, it's a wonder. Oh, it's, it's a, not a wonder. It's a good thing uh, Gilchrist was able to look at a lore because there's a, there's this story that there were two guys who were aspiring mandolin makers in Australia, and one of those guys, and and like Steve did, you know, that Steve took the measurements. He didn't have a you know anything to go by, but sort of took his proportions from pictures of Bill Monroe. And Steve's, you know, over six feet, and, and his hands probably the size of Monroe's, so <laughs> yeah. he could he could uh, pretty accurately gauge the dimensions of a mandolin. And there was another guy there doing the same thing, uh, except he was using pictures of Roland White. So his <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so this is a little bit different yeah, to size. So, <laughs> yeah, so his mandolins were all out of proportion. You know, they were huge. Uh, that's 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 a legend, and Gilchrist will not. Uh, uh, say that that legend is true, but uh, maybe that's that's why he stood out among the Australian makers in the early days. But, right. Uh, he is still so passionate about every detail of mandolin making, and that's why his are still tops, I think. You took me back and introduced me to him when I was here last December when he was doing that batch, and I've never seen somebody so passionate about something as far as he comes here and he sets them up after they, they, they fly in. Yeah. And then he ships them out, and then he waits here till he knows every person is satisfied <laughs> with the purchase. Oh, yeah. And he's like a ball of nerves, you know? Yeah. And he's telling you the story, and you can see, like, the, the anxiety. And I'm just like, that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's the type of thing that it, it gets lost in, yeah. in, 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 not just in instruments, and just everything in, in general life. You know what I mean? Is yeah. people get successful, and then they kind of, well, successful. So I just yeah. kind of let it ride. Now I made it. And yeah, man, that's oh that's no. Every else. every year, the mandolins will get here a day or two before he does, and they'll be crated up. And yeah, he'll be a bundle of nerves. <laughs> Comes to the door of the store, and we, you know we say hey and hug, shake hands, and, and he's a beeline back to the shop, and it's just you know it, it's like a newborn baby. You're uh, yeah. And until he gets them out on the bench, tuned up, 
and and gets to check them all out make sure there's no no damage a lot of times they've shifted a little and there may be a little finish so he's then he's busy at work right then starting to polish up finish and wow and 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 it goes from there he doesn't the, the enthusiasm and the passion does not does not diminish for him yeah what um it, it since you've opened it I guess maybe a little bit before you but there's definitely been a a curve in in the mandolin market as well as like at one point it just seemed like the prices were just you know like a lore was like two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars you know and so it it skyrockets to this amount and then suddenly yeah. you look and they're like I mean they're still expensive but you know well that's that's happened several times for Stratocasters. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a cover of a guitar player magazine in the, in the late '80s, you know, about the Strat Mania phenomenon, <laughs> and they've, uh, you know, Fenders especially have, have skyrocketed and then fallen, just like stock market, uh, you know, a commodity like that. Uh, that had never happened to mandolins. I mean, it had to sometime. They can't just keep. Basically, I think uh, Daryl Wolf. Uh, provided this information I, I think it was every seven years they doubled going back to when they were you know 15 or 3500 dollars or something it went that far back and you know they would plateau a little bit but they would never they never went down uh but you know if they were two hundred thousand seven years ago they, they i guess conceivably they could be four hundred thousand today but right. But that's not at all what has happened. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know why the demand, it could be people are, are uh, cautious now sure. and, and afraid that, uh, one, there is no demand if they want to resell, <clears throat> and two, that the, the prices may even go lower. Hmm. Um, but there's, there's been you know, very few sales of lures in the last couple of years. Yeah, because it sure seemed like, uh, you know, like on the cafe or whatever, you'd just see, yeah. oop, somebody, yeah, everybody knows where, like, every lore is. Yeah. And, you know, so it was just like, hey, so-and-so, just it would seem like you would see that yeah. every couple well, of months or so, yeah. It would be understandable if somebody come up with something better or, or just something new that was the new sound. Right. And I guess maybe to a little extent um, that lore, bark, and bite is not so appreciated by some of the younger players sure. who are oh, playing sure. lighter. Uh, you know, even though what they, what they heard from Thiele was probably played on a lore <laughs> uh, <laughs> that inspired them. Um, it, it would be with a lighter touch and, and some mandolins uh, and mandolinists just don't, I, I think maybe they don't hear the necessity of, 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 the, of having the full lore sound. Um, but that's, nah, I don't think that's enough to really just kill a market. Sure. It could be that there's all these young, great mandolinists who don't have enough money to buy lore. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, the music business is yeah. not, you know, with streaming yeah. and everything yeah. like that. Yeah. I guess, wow, yeah. you've really, I would, I, you never mm-hmm. even really think of that part. It just yeah. struck me of like, you know, before you could have a bluegrass album sell, you know, 200, 300,000 copies, mm-hmm. you know, and now we probably lucky to sell a thousand physical yeah. copies right anyway and that that's yeah. significant source yeah. of income cut and we're also in a time when uh the, the the first big wave of collectors uh is aging out and 
um, they're not buying it. They're, I mean, they're the ones who are selling these lures. And with a lot of other instruments, uh, it seems that uh, younger people have moved into that position of, of buying and collecting, but maybe not so much with mandolins yet. So there were, there's this little lull or, or gap in the market or demand for lures. Um, I, I just I, I can't imagine that they would go just completely out of favor. Sure, you know, I can't imagine that either. Not, people are not going to look at a lure like they look at a bowl bag. <laughs> right. So right. <clears throat> What uh, what do you think? This is you know asking a an expert. <laughs> this I'll, I'll, this we, question. We can find one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is it about the lore that you think is um, you know aside from the fact of like the legend of making them and the collectability portion of it? You know, you're talking about the bark and the bite. What is it do you think that 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 makes that lore so special? Well, that's I mean part of it is that's what Monroe played. The same as a. You know, as a flathead banjo, that's what Earl played. And, um, you know, if, if Earl had played something else, we might not think a flathead sounded so great. Uh, it might be too loud or too cutting, you know. And, uh, the same with, with, uh, with F5. Um, but so part of it I, is that's what Monroe played and that's what, you know, the music grew around. So if you're going to play tr- traditional bluegrass or something near that, you've got to have that quality in a mandolin. And uh, that's where, you know, I don't, I don't know that, it, you know, people may equal a lore. I don't think anybody else has ever surpassed most lures. There, there's some, I wouldn't call them duds, but sure. maybe some disappointing lures. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'd imagine like anything. I mean, yeah. just time yeah. is going to do something to wood you know what i mean right. if something's not right um do you have any particular mandolin that you've seen come through the shop here where you were kind of like i wish i would have kept that one. Oh, i did keep it oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a d'angelico john d'angelico oh wow a, no kidding a mandolin and wow. it has it just has the most beautiful lower register tone and then a real pure high end it's it's not in any way a bluegrass mandolin it would be maybe the to my ear the best jazz mandolin that, I, that i've ever heard nice did it, did it come in as used or was it one that you had, had well, your eye I, on? uh it was used um i grew and had it years ago i think i might have sold it to the guy who brought it back back in no I, kidding i coveted it back then but just uh at that time didn't want to pony up the price um, but then i kind of missed it once it was gone and when it came back I just, uh, you know, we put a tag on it for a while, but I wouldn't let anybody see it. (laughs) 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 It had a tag on it, but it was in Christie's office. Oh, that's Uh, so classic. Who are some of the people, I guess, and they don't have to be necessarily mandolin players, but I mean, Nashville, every every tour comes through Nashville. Big tour, small tour. Uh, And I would imagine, uh, I mean. Well, some some people stop in and some don't. And you, you never know. Um, we had a bunch of people calling when John Mayer was playing in town and just assuming he would come by here. And he, right, right. He didn't. But no kidding. Yeah. Huh. But um, I'd, I'd say more people do come in. Yeah. Sometimes we go to them. Uh, somebody was asking me today if Derek Trucks had ever been in. And no, he hasn't. But we, we took guitars to him. Oh, cool. 
when he was in town. Yeah, yeah. You guys post some really cool, uh, some pictures every now and again. It shows. Uh, well, I love mm-hmm. Jason Isbell. Oh yeah. And um, it seems like he might have struck up a thing before he was. He was quote unquote Jason Isbell. He, yeah, he was just out of the drive-by truckers and and just straightened up his life. And uh, he was a kid, you know, in, in a ball cap and some jeans, and uh, was very polite and just trying out some guitars and. Uh, of course, one of our younger salesmen recognized him from from the truckers, and uh, he had he had probably just recorded uh, the album that that put him on the map with the, the, all the when he swept all the Americana awards. Yeah, the so, southeastern. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, he was just another guy in the store, and that usually, fortunately, we've got a, a, a wide enough range of age among the employees here that that. Not many people are going to come through unnoticed. Um, you ever been starstruck by anybody or anyone? Were, maybe not starstruck, but just like, oh, holy cow. Well, my uh, one guy I really liked a lot and in, in when I was songwriting more was Ry Cooter. Oh, and, yeah. And so the first time he came in, uh, we were all kind of tiptoeing around. And, of course, he's <laughs> all, almost all these people are just normal guys. And... And, and want to be treated that way um you know i think the store was almost empty when carlos santana came in and but you know i just i went up to him just introduced myself and uh he was he was great uh pete townsend came in wow and, uh hung around up here for a little while and in, in, you know with the door closed in the in the high end room and that's when he bought the fern oh no kidding yeah um, oh wow! And he's he was wanting to play something else, um, maybe a Duff or an Ellis or something he'd heard about, and and he did, and and so we pulled a lore out and said, "Try this," and he, oh, you know. <laughs> so he, he played a few licks on that, and then um, he's oh, there is a difference. And then we handed him the fern, and he looks at the pro, oh, a midline model. <laughs> you know, it's like. <laughs> You know, thirty thousand or so, uh, or, or maybe sixty or seventy, I think, at, at that time. And so that's the one he got, and he he picked out something else here. And so then he started wandering around the uh, the bigger room, and there were quite a few people out there. But you know, he doesn't look like the Who album covers anymore. And, <laughs> right, right. And and is and a lot of people have sat there unmolested, and mm-hmm. uh, even uh, Kevin Costner sat there on a bench for. 30 minutes singing to himself one day and oh wow and nobody really noticed uh jeff daniels has come in quite a few times yeah um especially in nashville people you know a a visiting fan might uh might play the fan role Mm -hmm. but but for most of the people that are from here you know they they know not to bother people or or they just treat them like you know hey how you doing and um so anyway townsend uh, just walked around out there, and I'd, I'd kept it together pretty much <laughs> up until that point. And he grabbed a J two hundred off oh, the wall that no. had the tunematic bridge, and uh, he said, "Oh, this is the Pinball Wizard guitar." And then he played that lick, and I, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, that's Pete Townsend in my store. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Pete. That's a, but just for a moment there, I, I got a little weak in the knees. Yeah. And, at that and that's great and i don't i don't know I mean, everybody is, is so i mean i've john sebastian's been in he's a guy that i i liked a lot when i was 
just getting into music and although I'd met him before, but it, uh, you know, it's, it's not starstruck, but really amazed that these people would be in my store. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's so cool. And you have the the best approaching way anyway, too. I mean, yeah. you own the place. You're like, oh, yeah. hey, if you need anything, just, yeah. just yeah. holler at <laughs> right. happen to Happen to own it. So yeah, here. <laughs> here, try this. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh, you don't want to play that one. Let us grab you there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, man. Any, uh, any like, notable mandolin stories that you can think of in your in your years, maybe of all the years that you've been doing this, not even necessarily, you know. Oh, I think just the players that come in here and these these hotshot kids just, I want to strangle them. They're, <laughs> they're so good. Uh, we were talking right before we, we started about, uh, uh, about how they get bored and want to play a fiddle tune uh, backwards and in a minor key just, just out of boredom because <laughs> right. they're so damn good. And it just. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's like- so it's, it's, it's almost, it, it's a fairly steady parade of, of really good musicians. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some more famous than others, but it doesn't really matter. Sure. Um, Has anybody dropped a lore? No. Um, I almost sat on one Whoa. years ago. It was, <laughs> it was in a chair behind me, and that was the last time I ever put a, a lore or any mandolin in a chair. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, we've had a few things uh, that have sort of been dropped or knocked over mm. uh, in photography, but uh, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've, seems like we, we, we had something, maybe a hook fail or, or somebody knocked something over, but no big, uh, no major um, catastrophes for. Good. That's amazing. Yeah. What is the most prized instrument that's, that's come through here, guitar or, or, um, you know, maybe historically or well, or price wise, I would say maybe historically the most important. Well, there are two. One one was the first Granada five string with the flathead, uh, two piece flange and flathead. Wow! And the other would be the very first um, Cherry Sunburst Les Paul. Oh there, wow! Uh, there were a few experimental Sunburst and Cherry kind of things right before it but but <clears throat> this was the the first one that looks like although it had a three-piece top rather than a two-piece oh did it really yeah cool and the one that was shipped right with it which is owned by slash has a two-piece wow but a later serial number so there's your evolution right there in, right. in one on one line of a of a ledger book so that that was pretty exciting to have that and we have right now the very first uh Spanish neck electric guitar. Do you really? Yeah, from Rickenbacker. Oh wow! Which was not Rickenbacker yet, but but from 1932, they made a like two Hawaiians and then this one. No kidding. And it's been it's not a, a find. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been in a museum actually for a few years in in, in Wichita. Is there like a uh, is there anything that you've always keeping your eye out for to roll through here? Is there any particular instrument where you like? I know that's going to come up here. How do I? Well, that first burst was one of those because I, I knew yeah. the serial number wow. from looking through Gibbs, Gibson ledgers. Mm-hmm. So when I, a guy called with it, and I knew right away that that's that, you know that was the, the number. I, I hadn't seen the guitar yet. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that I'm just 
on the you just never know what's going to come in. Um, I mean, Rodney Dillard brought his his Andy Griffith show guitar in. Did he really? Yeah. So. Holy cow. Um, and, you know, there's a Wilma Lee Cooper D45 on the wall right now. Of course, she, I think she had three of them. So <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's just one of her D45s. Right. Uh, um, do you kind of have like a, do you have other certain people though when like, you know, like that Les Paul hmm. comes in? Is it already kind of like, we're going to hang on to this for the, to have it, but, but there's, couple people in mind that you have like oh, i gotta reach out to some people yeah or, yeah there, there's always a few people who will call on something like that yeah um that didn't sell right away no kidding yeah wow I mean, it took a few months but sure but it well was, it's an yes, i'd imagine yeah. it's an investment at that point. yeah we i think we had 625 <laughs> large as they say <laughs> yeah, 625 <laughs> large <laughs> <laughs> on that one wow yeah. what about um have you guys had any issues with, I know, like, they call them, like, chips and guitars or whatever, where now there's people of, uh... As, Fake. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, for a while, they were so bad that they were pretty easy to spot. Sure, I bet. Uh, and there was a series that looked like Les Paul Customs that had a smaller logo, and they had the wrong inlay, but the, uh, and, and a sort of a tiny version of the inlay on the headstock, probably just copied from a picture. Um... We've seen a few better fakes, um, but nothing really um, like market pervasive. Uh, we've also seen not not in the U.S. yet, but some somebody in in South America has taken our logo and slapped it on some fenders. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. Whoa. So you know, I sent them a nasty email. I don't know what else. Uh, I, I'm sure they were made in China, but um, it's, wow. it's been uh, the the two dealers we've seen them show up at have been South American. No kidding. <clears throat> yeah, so that's uh, it's uh, flattery to some degree. Sure. Yeah. To, a, yeah. to some degree would be yeah. the key, I guess. What about um, if somebody's coming in to buy a mandolin? What's advice you would give somebody? Um, I guess at any range, maybe not maybe not a first time mandolin player, but somebody who's ready to uh, to make an investment. Because I think a lot of people are confused a little bit by, um, you know, like oh, I have to have this brand, or and you know, it's not about it's that. Sort of. I mean, we ask the same questions uh, that <clears throat> that everybody would. You know, what what kind of music are you playing, and do you want to play? Um, you know, what are you playing now? And you know, without sounding too much like a, a used car salesman, what's the price range? Sure. You got to get that out of the yeah. way, man. You yeah. Know? That's a- yeah. But as far as, I mean, we've usually got a pretty wide selection that we can set up. You know, here's four or five, let's say, mm-hmm. in different price ranges and maybe in different styles. Uh, you know, it doesn't, these days, I don't, I don't, somebody says, I want an F model. We might say, well, Try this uh, Kimball A or mm-hmm. this Duff A right. or this LSA. Those are three guys that I think really excel with their A's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so it, you, know, you try to, to break through some prejudice that they might have. If sure. they're bluegrassers, there's no talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not what I mean, Bill they, played. <laughs> they won't, well, they won't even look at a, at a natural finish mandolin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, that yeah that narrows it down right there, but 
but if they're starting out and um you know we we try to put something that's uh that's that's got some real tone to it and then just let them see some of the some of the variations right it's Mm -hmm. it's amazing um to me especially coming here as many times i've been here is just like Mm -hmm. to just go along the wall and just and with no prejudice and just mm-hmm. be like, ah, I think I'll pick this up today. And just how surprised you are by certain, like some mandolins, no matter what the brand is, they just sound amazing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that, that's always interesting. And, and you know, several times people have done that and posted something on the cafe. And, you know, I went down the whole, yeah. played everything in the room and here's what stood out. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's something you would expect and sometimes it's not. Yeah. And it's, it's always interesting what, what people hear. And everybody hears differently. I mean, I've I've gone back, you know, the next day to a mandolin that I thought stood out above the rest and then changed my mind. Right. <laughs> of course, a mandolin could have changed in a day also yeah. With, yeah. with just some, especially a newer mandolin, just a little more play. Right. Uh, a lot of times, and unless the strings are just completely dead, I'll if we sell something, say, over the phone, you know, I'll tell the guy, I'll throw in a set of strings, but... I like what the way it sounds now with these older strings. So you can decide, uh, you know, or we'll, we'll put a new set on if you want them. If that's, yeah. I've seen that. Uh, I've been in here before mm-hmm. where they, somebody was looking at mm-hmm. a, uh, oh, um, a, an Alice and yeah. you guys changed the strings out and then he gave it to me. He's like, yeah. Hey, you sound like you can play. Can you play this for me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that happens a lot too. Any, anybody in here is, is fair game for a, a demo. Yeah. That was, uh, that was awesome. Pressed into a demo. <laughs> I mean, there was one day that Noam Pakelney was in here, and I think he was actually looking at uh, plectrum guitars or something. Uh, and he he wanted to see how something sounded with like with a group or get another opinion. And there was a group of two or three young ladies um, who were just one of them was just starting out on banjo in a in a tryout room, and he just pokes his head in. Yeah, let me play a little bit with you. See what what do you think of this? And they. <laughs> and you know you could hear her starting off a tune and was just almost unable to play and then then got into it and that was you know that was a really cool thing there was another day uh, a guy sitting on a bench trying something out and tommy emmanuel suddenly appears right beside him yeah let's play something together <laughs> let's see how this sounds and, yeah uh, oh my gosh yeah. yeah that's amazing man this place is the best. Uh, again, just well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time mm-hmm. to do this. Oh, I forgot, forgot like the most important question though. Well, actually, I have two more questions yeah. okay. for you. Actually, um, what's your main axe at home if you were to uh, mandolin wise? I guess well, aside from the one, yeah, the dream uh, one. Mostly, I've played mandola. Okay. Oh, cool. And, and I, um, you know, I had a mandolin, uh, mandolin around for a long time that had belonged to my aunt, and I guess she had played a little bit growing up in the '30s. And it was a it was a thirty nine I think uh, Gibson A one with a wide body with eleven inch body, and also had a, a picture of my grandmother in a mandolin orchestra from nineteen nineteen. Whoa! Wow! And, and she was playing a huge mandocello, and she was a little five foot, dainty uh, Southern belle. But I had never played much, and uh, I was working at Gruen's, and uh, a mandola came in that. Um, it was a, it was one of about eight, I think, that Steve Carlson had made at Gibson, and it may have been right after Steve. I'm not sure, uh, but I was 
just taken with the sound of a mandola. I mean, I'm a saxophone player also, and I play tenor. Not, oh, okay. Not yeah. alto. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and, and so I just, and, and I thought also, well, sort of as a justification for buying it, because I didn't really have any musical justification for doing that. Uh, I thought, well, I can, I think I'll just join the Nashville Mandolin Ensemble. And not realizing how arrogant a thought that was, you know, I'm, you know, so yeah, I'm, talking to butch yeah i think i'll join your band <laughs> <laughs> but it worked yeah, well, there you, go. See, you never know <laughs> yeah so um I, I, that's what i played i joined around 1995 uh playing mandola and charlie darrington was the other mandola player and then uh, um with right around that time they had all it was Butch and uh, and Charlie John Hedgecoth was playing mandocello and Fred Carpenter was the second uh, first chair in the second mandolin, and they had all ordered a, a a family of Gilchrist classical that he calls classical, you know, with the light top and the black binding and uh, saw <clears throat> probably an Engelman top, some a, a little bit softer top for a, a mellower tone, so they all got those in, and. Uh, at some point right after that, maybe around 98, I think, Gibson rehired Charlie when they brought the Bozeman mandolin, or Belgrade, I guess, mandolin flat iron facility back into Nashville and brought Dobro here and uh, formed the Bluegrass Division. So they hired Charlie, and he didn't want to be playing the Gilchrist while he worked for Gibson. It didn't, that didn't bother me at all. <laughs> right. So we traded. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah, I had to kick in. Sure. <laughs> uh, but, well, the, the new Gilchrist at that time were about 7,500 bucks. So I uh, didn't have to kick in too much. And so we, uh, we just swapped. And so I got this uh, Gilchrist Mandola that's still, it's sitting out on my couch right now still. So that's what I pick up if, um, if I'm going to play anything, and I've I've got a, a Gilchrist Manticello also that oh, neat. stays mostly in the case, but sure. if yeah, you know, I'll pull that out. But uh, the mandolas, uh, uh, you know, I, I just I never I'm, I'm not a good enough mandolin player to really do much on mandolin. <laughs> sure, but uh, the you know the mandola parts typically in a at least in the old time mandolin orchestras were fairly easy. And uh, so I was able to fit in, you know, pick them up there. I, I didn't realize how hard some of the part, you know, we that group did everything. I mean, the last CD was called Bach, Beatles, and Bluegrass. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, the Mandola parts were not easy on a lot of those things. No. Um, did they have In Memory of Elizabeth Reed on it? Yeah, we did that. Uh, I think it was on that album because I think I did the arrangement on that oh, one. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, of course, if I'm arranging, I can write my parts <laughs> yeah. easy. <laughs> but, <laughs> Here's the sheets, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, but but that's that's remained uh, my sort of my main instrument in the mandolin family and my favorite one. Yeah. The only the only drawback with and I you know I, I wish it were more popular and and more appreciated. Yeah. Um, and I you know I even led a a, a little. Uh, you know, workshop in the at the Classical Mandolin Society one year, uh, and wrote a song called "He's a Mandola Man" so <laughs> to try to to help promote this thing. But I, the the draw the only drawback is uh, the 
you know, the range of the mandola is overlaps or, or is the same as the guitar for a lot. So it's, it's not that it's, that's a bad thing, but it makes one of those instruments somewhat unnecessary uh, in a group. And I mean, you can, I don't like chopping anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not as effective as a, as a chop rhythm instrument. Um, it is pretty effective just playing jazz kind of rhythm, but if you've got a guitar, there's that. And, and solo wise, you're still in the, you know, it's not, if you're listening, uh, it, it's not, you know, well, the guitar takes a solo one range and then there's a, a, a break where the mandolin is in a different range and, and the bass takes a solo. So you've got a guitar and then the next instrument, the solos, if it's a mandola, is going to sound somewhat the same. Right, right. So it's it's got some, you know, a strike or two against it. <laughs> yeah. But it's still, it's it's, you know, a good mandola has such a beautiful sound. And then the final mm-hmm. question is, do you have a favorite beer? <laughs> well, the, the the go-to beer around here is the Jackalope. Uh, I was wondering when the beer would work it, work its way into this. I mean, we you know we finished the growler that we started this session with. That's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've, the Jackalope is, is 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 a great brewery, but Nashville has a lot of uh, of craft breweries. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm an IPA guy, so. I kind of spread it around if if I'm in a grocery store. Uh, you know, I discovered way back uh, Sierra Nevada. Oh, yeah. Um, God, back, um, God, that's probably been 15 years ago and on a, a trip. Well, it was actually to a mandolin um, symposium out in uh, Bakersfield. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Um, no, it was before that. I'm sorry. That was a different trip. <laughs> <laughs> so it's beers. I'm just, yeah. I'm just... Uh, yeah, a festival dropping here. Yeah. Uh, but no, it was uh, re- real early. My wife and I uh, were just up and down the coast and stopped in a little place that had a bunch of beers. And that we let's try that one in the green bottle. And, and so that's that's how we got on to Sierra Nevada. And, um, you know, I still drink that today. But, yeah, I spread it around. I'm always wanting to try new stuff. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's the problem. So many. Yeah, but the chances are, if we got a growler here in the in the fridge, it's going to be Thunder Ann from Jackalope. Great beer. Yeah, great beer. Walter, thank you for doing this, man. This has My been pleasure. this has been awesome. Yeah. This is yeah, this is great. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. <laughs>